It's easy to fear the future. The shadow of Brexit hangs over us. Runaway climate chaos is getting closer and all around there is inequality. But despite all this, Greens don't fear the future. We are the future. You can trust us to keep our promises and hold the other parties to account. Greens in Parliament will campaign for Remain and let no government get away with more failure on climate chaos. We can't afford it. This election could be the last chance we have to transform Britain. It's time to change course. Vote Green, if not now, when? Sean, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, Green Space, where we explore green ideas with a green narrative and from a green perspective. So we're about nine days away from the elections now. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how everyone feels. Um, so many debates have been happening. You appeared on the climate debate, which was fantastic that we're having that. It was so good that we had that. I mean, obviously, it's the, it's the people doing the petitions and, mm. and you know, Channel 4, credit to Channel 4 for taking yeah. that seriously. Um, and they put, I mean, they, they did the whole thing with five days notice, um, including getting light sculptures. So it was very, very <laughs> impressive of them to have done that. Yeah, I loved that. And uh, it was so good. I mean, it was good that everyone, apart from um, Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, turned up. Um, yeah. And we had a quite in-depth debate it was it was very interesting yeah it's probably better they weren't there to kind of derail the whole thing it felt like there was such a consensus between the rest yeah it was about how we do it not whether mm. i think it was um obviously questions about targets um, yeah. and levels of investment and all of those things but but people are a few steps along the road now um in some kind of agreement and that's definitely progress i think yeah absolutely um and today i want to talk to you about the Green New Deal and pick your brain specifically on Green New Deal for housing and housing mm. in general. But I do want to start by getting a bit personal with you because for every politician, their personal history shapes the politician they've become. So I'm always interested to know what was your what was your childhood like and how did it shape the politician you became? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I, I've got a fairly um, normal background. It's really hard to find the right words, but my parents were teachers. Um, I grew up in uh, on the outskirts of a town on like a new estate um, and I've described this as ordinary before but they've kicked off they've said like we're not ordinary but yeah we had periods where we had very little money um, for various reasons and so you know I knew what struggling was like but also we had mm. two, I've got two lovely sisters and um, I think one thing that shaped me from my childhood is that my dad's a, a sportsman he, he played rugby at quite a high level and mm. was quite keen on, on sport in general. And although I'm not very good at sport, I you know I do things like chess and quizzes instead. Um, but he definitely taught me the value of fair play, sticking to the rules, oh. the sportsmanship, and all of those kinds of values that you just you'd expect to see in politics. But yeah. actually, we're seeing less and less of. You know, people on all sides treating other people not as human beings um, because mm -hmm. they're the opposition not having respect for people being you know, humans with families um, and, and giving abuse. And, and, and that just, mm. you, know, you wouldn't do that. In the, you might do a bit of sledging in a cricket match, but you wouldn't like blatantly cheat and, and actually yeah. abuse people. And, and it's just, I, I just really feel like being a, a good loser and a good winner and, and, and keeping respect for your opponents and mm. sticking to the rules 
of, of, of they're really 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 hard words <laughs> yeah. it's very important yeah um and i just yeah i just feel like that's that's really something not not many people turns out have people are prepared to be quite horrible yeah i've never thought about that link that comparison because i guess in politics you have to be competitive so competitive but also you have to have a competitive have, streak yeah. which i've obviously inherited but um but with respect yeah, and, and obviously, you know, we do, we do politics in, instead of going to war, instead of fighting. You know, it's, what, mm. it's part of civilization. It's what we do as part of living in a civilised society is politics. And it doesn't make sense if politics <coughs> becomes something where there are no rules and there's no holds barred and people can lie and cheat and, and, and fight and hurt each other. Um, because it is the substitute for that kind of behaviour that we, we invented it in order to be civilised. And green politics is about doing politics differently, right? Yes, I mean, indifferently again, in terms of being more cooperative between people and, and all of those kinds of things. We've tried to, to, to pioneer in our working councils a lot of the time, um, but also in this election specifically, through actually sitting down and talking to other parties and, and coming to an agreement about which one of us fight seats is the United Unite to Remain candidate. Mm. And that's something that, that's never happened. People always talk about it. It should happen, but never happened before in a, in a way that people have actually announced an agreement I think I think that's something genuinely new yeah it's really groundbreaking so Sean you're not a new green you joined the party 18 years ago and since then you've run for mayor twice mayor of London and you're the candidate in the 2020 mayoral elections you've also run a huge range of campaigns on different issues and you've written books about green living so why politics and why the green party well I mean the politics part of this is it's part of the work that I've always done. I've been a campaigner as well. I worked for Campaign for Better Transport for five years, mm-hmm. specifically on transport and, and roads and trying to get money invested in walking and cycling and public transport instead of road building. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so I've always seen the value in trying to influence what the people currently in power do and working out tactics for doing that. But it's inescapable that one of the best tactics for doing that is actually to take away their votes and <laughs> take away their seats and try and win that power for yourself. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's been something I've done, um, you know, I've, I've gone between the two careers a bit, year on year. But even when I'm being a um, politician, I always work with campaigners and take my lead from campaigners a lot of the time on, for example, housing, yeah. work that, that Generation Rent have done, uh, the London Renters Union, ACORN and... There's, there's just a big group of housing NGOs who, who know their stuff, who've got grassroots connections um, and, and real people's real lives and examples behind them. Mm. And, and when they're asking for something and you're asking for something, it's how you can play a part in what they're doing by introducing topics into the London Assembly or putting forward budget amendments, the kind of things I have the power to do to back them up. That, yeah. that that's when you actually get things done. And we've, we've got things done in, in London through that kind of multi-layered pressure mm. so yeah I, I, my, my life and my work has all, all been about trying to understand power and how people exercise it and yeah. how to change what, what they do and and for certain taking away their votes and, and their seats and taking their place <laughs> in the corridors of power is, is absolutely part of it and we're yeah. really you know green, green parties are a really important part of of the, the wider environmental movement but also the mm-hmm. social justice movement as well for years we were the only allies of groups who were trying to stop NHS privatisation. Uh, a lot of the unions, the education unions, for example, we've been the only ones sticking up for their policies against uh, testing and Ofsted and 
and SATs and, and the academization for, for years and years. Yeah. We've been, we've been the only politicians on their side. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it's just good to be to recognise your role as the, the political arm of all these different movements and the people who actually can bring motions and, and bring initiatives and actually change budgets in the end. And you're a member of the London Assembly and there's just two Greens on there. It's you and Caroline Russell. And oh, what a power couple. <laughs> you two just... <laughs> we are, we're a proper team and uh, we're, there's only two of us um, and we've got um, a team of staff as well who work on our assembly work with us. But we know absolutely how strategic we have to be, how careful we have to be about our time mm. to make sure that we're using it effectively. We could just spend all day sitting around complaining about things that were going wrong. Yeah. But instead of that, we've, we've, we've worked like campaigners do and built up um, the case for policies that the mayor should do that are in our manifesto, not his. And we've got quite a few things through. I think, you know, we've, in, in three years, we've got quite a long list of things that are in that we're in our manifesto in 2016 and we've actually got the current event to do from, from this position of just having two of us. So I'm really, yeah, Caroline's yeah. amazing. Um, she, yeah, we just, yeah, we work really well together and I think it's um, really more of us. Um, See, so this, this is the danger. So I talk about how amazing Caroline Lucas is and it makes it sound like she's she's plenty. <laughs> she mm. so isn't. <laughs> like yeah. with two Caroline Lucases, we could do more than twice as much. That's that's kind of how it works when you've got, when you've got a team. Absolutely. And one of the things you've been working on in the London Assembly and pushing the mayor on, that's Sadiq Khan, the Labour Party mayor, is renters' rights, right? Rent controls, um, things like a ban on letting agent fees. Yes. So what's he getting wrong? Well, I mean, the, the thing about the mayor is when he came in, um, he had some quite vague promises to, to support renters. I was very specific when I was campaigning that I thought we needed more rights for renters, we need to lose Section 21, which is the, the way that the landlord can make you um, make you homeless without a reason, so they can just take back control of the home whenever they want um, with two months' notice. That makes a lot of people homeless unnecessarily, and people mm-hmm. need greater security. Um, so I was very much in terms of rights, and I wanted to set up a union to support those rights as well, but also for rent controls, because rents were spiralling out of control. Um, and both Sadiq Khan and Zach Goldsmith's promises were little more than I think Zach Hoffman was specifically, I will bear down on rents. <laughs> conservative <laughs> candidate. I will bear down. <laughs> Just a loom over nothing. It's completely meaningless. Um, so what my, my mission, the Assembly has been to firm up that promise into actually exploring and pushing the government to give us the rights to set rent controls at London level. Uh, and it's something I did before I was elected as well, because there was a bill going through called the Cities and... Oh, uh, Cities and Local Government Devolution Bill, I think it was called. Mm. Um, and within that, we could have put in a couple of lines that would have given those powers to people in cities, the, the metropolitan mayors, like the mayor of Manchester as well. And mm. Sadiq Khan was an MP at this point. And there were several people who were trying to run for mayor because it was in the middle of the, the selection contests within the parties. And so I suggested they should all put forward an amendment. And Caroline Lucas did put forward an amendment um, into that bill. And none of the other parties would support it, so it couldn't get put. Mm. But it could have been fixed years ago, giving the power to do rent controls. It doesn't mean you have to do rent controls. It's just the power for the mayor to do rent controls. Oh, wow. So simple. Um, But yeah, within City Hall, what I've done is I've tried to push Sadiq Khan into... Uh, a position of supporting rent control and it was a long slog and um, took three years one of the first things wow. I brought up in Mayor's Question Time was was this issue and he t- turned around to me at this point and he said 
um, oh, Sean, the government will not give us rent control. They won't, they won't ban tenant fees. Why are you be real, Sean? Essentially, patting me on the head, not not literally, but figuratively. Yeah. Um, and then one year ago from today, more or less, at the end of 2018, um, I had the same conversation with him. And at this point, the government had shifted on tenant fees, of course, because there was a very strong campaign about this. Yeah. Um, because it was, there, there were rules about tenant fees, and they were just being flouted. There was no transparency. People were being hit by late fees and, yeah. and fees for all kinds of ridiculous things. It was, it was just being absolutely abused by letting agents and landlords. So the government finally relented on this. So they were banning tenant fees. <laughs> Yay. Um, and I went to see the mayor again in mayor's question time and said, look, we're making no progress on rent controls. When are you going to come out and support these campaigners? Mm. And he said again, we're not going to just get rent controls off the government. I'm asking him how many times he's met ministers, whether he's ever discussed them with, him, with, with them. And he's kind of saying nothing about that. But then uh, and then I pointed out to him that two years before that, I said, why don't you do this? And he pointed, he said no rent controls and no tenant fees. And yet, you know, we campaigned on that and we won. So that yeah. um, we should be campaigning. And it took him a month after that to think about what I'd said and come forwards and, and say, actually, I will. I'm going to commission some work on rent controls because mm. I think it, it is what's needed. And he commissioned some work from New Economics Foundation, which has now been published. And there are different options that could be in, on the cards. And he says he's, asked, he's going to ask for the powers as well. So when we get a new government, that'll be my first question. Have you been to see the new housing minister to ask for the power for rent controls? So, yeah, next MQT, Sadiq Khan, that is going to be what I'm asking. <laughs> now you know, Sadiq. <laughs> and regarding housing, let's go back to basics. So what should housing be like? I want to take a rights-based approach to housing because the key thing is um, you know, written into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a right to basic material security. And if that's not a roof over your head, I don't know what is. So Mm -hmm. housing, secure housing is a human right. And I think there's a lot we can do within laws to firm up people's rights to have a decent home. And this is where rent controls comes into it, because I don't know if you remember in Parliament, there was a a lot of fuss about ministers and MPs voting down a bill to just guarantee uh, renters the right to uh, a decent home effectively one that was fit for human habitation yeah and they voted this down and there was an absolute outcry and so in the next sort of session of parliament um mp labor mp karen buck brought forward the homes fit for human habitation bill and that went through and what that does is it gives private renters the right to insist that they have homes that are fit for human habitation how lovely <laughs> um, how basic yeah uh, so that's your basic your first basic right and then obviously, if you complain about your home not being fit for human habitation and your landlord has the ability to evict you without giving a reason, then your landlord can evict you um, in a retaliatory way. Yeah. So that means that the, the Section 21, the no-fault evictions clause, has to go as well. Otherwise, you can't meaningfully exercise your right to home fit for human habitation. Yeah. Um, and once you've got that right not to be evicted under Section 21... The next thing is, well, if you've got a bad landlord who wants to throw you out, what's the other thing they can do? They can raise the rent. Mm. You need some sort of right not to have your rent raised, rent raised mm. above um, what's what's reasonable. And that's where rent controls has to follow, in my view. And then if you've got all those three rights, and just as long as you're paying your rent and you're looking after your home and you're sticking to the terms and conditions, you have the right to stay in that home. That's proper security of housing. And that's mm-hmm. what I want to fix at national level. Um, within 
investment and funding. We've had too many years of, of social housing, of council housing being decimated. I think two and a half million, more than that, um, council homes have been sold off under right to buy. Hardly any have been replaced. There's mm. the net loss of council homes year on year on year that's, that's still going on right around the country. And in London, we've just started to build more council homes. There's some new grants coming through. And again, um, the mayor's grants are improved and we, we've helped to improve them as Greens and, and the Assembly in terms of our campaigning. It was just starting to be a few, you know, maybe a thousand council homes in London, might be up, but it in no way makes up for the, the losses. Yeah. So the new government absolutely has to put billions and billions into new council homes. And we're putting forward bigger grants, um, £10.5 billion pounds a year over into um, new council home building. And that will that will provide for £100,000 a year. And that's absolutely needed. And something we've been putting forward. And we, you know, we, we were laughed at by saying this in 20, 2015. But now it's, it's pretty much all parties are saying we need more in the way of social housing. Um, and the Conservatives are still stuck on trying to provide for people to, to own their own homes. But I think we've got the right thing there where we, we're just saying, actually, no, council housing, social housing, that's what's needed. Yeah. And why don't, why don't we have that yet? What went wrong? And how will Brexit affect this? Well, a lot. I mean, almost everything is wrong with the housing market. So I could be here for a very good time. The rise <laughs> okay, two model minute is summary. <laughs> yeah. The rise model is broken. The costs are wrong. All the power lies with landlords. A lot of people yep. own um, properties simply as investments, and they're just trying to gag as much as possible out of private renters. There's not enough council housing, so more people are in private renting. Um, there's no security for them in that tenure. And house prices, particularly in London, are very, very high compared with wages. And so people cannot buy their own homes when they want to buy their own homes. Plus, when they're renting, they, they can't spare a penny to be saving up for these deposits either. So the whole the whole system in absolute crisis and we feel it worse in London. Um, but, but successive government policies like right to buy, which the last Labour government didn't get rid of, remember, mm. um, has, has decimated our, our housing stock in, in such a, a huge way that, that actually... Providing more low-cost rented homes is, is the absolute priority. It's, it's the need. And, and the Conservatives cannot accept this. They, they have an ideological um, opposition to providing secure, low-cost rented homes. They, you can hear some of their attitudes to people on benefits and the questions that they face on child poverty, that people should just be able to manage their money better and it's all your own fault if you haven't got any money. Well, you know, it, it isn't. Plus, we're not talking about homes that are a charity for the most destitute. We're talking about the basic right to be able to, to rent a home that you can afford when you're on an average salary. That's mm-hmm. what's absolutely missing. And that's what's yeah. leading to people. We've got 135,000 children living in temporary accommodation who are homeless this Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, Shelter just put out the numbers today. And it's all those people slipping through the cracks that are left in the housing mm-hmm. system that's leading to that. So yeah, the system's full of cracks and the Conservatives have only ever tried to focus, as you can imagine, on increasing the supply of market homes. Yeah. You know, the most expensive, the most profitable homes um, that the big developers provide in the hope that that trickle-down effect will, will, will help. And it hasn't. It's been the way they've done it for, for 10 years and it's made no difference. Things have got worse. We've got more children homeless than, than ever before. So we have to fix it from the bottom up instead. You know, root, root and branch, the housing system needs to be fixed. Yeah. And that starts with building more low-cost rented homes and, and not relying on the market and not having 
completely wasteful policies like help to buy, which has spent billions and billions. It's over 10 million pounds has gone out wow. in grants to help people buy homes at full market price um, on these interest free mm-hmm. loans um, to get you the deposit part. But it's only helping people on much higher than average salaries. Mm. And it's spent so much money. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it's achieved virtually nothing. Yeah. And their starter homes, which are supposed to be these slightly discounted homes, none of them have been built. It was one of those wheezes, one of those policies you come up with at conference that, that aren't really um, properly thought out. And it's just yeah. hasn't worked. It literally hasn't worked. It, there, there are zero starter homes. So, yeah, wow. the Conservatives have never really tried with this never really looked at the causes, never really respected people who are in need of housing, who might who are working and yeah. and and just need lower rents. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a real attitude change needs to happen. And it's sort of happening. It's sort of happening. Yeah. So tell us about the Green New Deal for housing and, and what part housing plays in the Green Party's vision of a Green New Deal. So the one hundred thousand council homes a year, that is part of our Green New Deal for housing. That's the new homes portion. They'd all be built partly why our grants are higher, um, they'd all be built to um, the highest energy efficiency standards, what's called passive house, which is essentially um, homes that, that do not need um, a, hardly any heating in, in the winter and keep themselves cooler in the summer through through ventilation and things like that. They're, they're an excellent standard. And we've just seen some new homes in, in Norwich come forward, mm-hmm. council homes built to that standard. So it can be done. There's a few in my ward as well, um, in my ward of, ward of Highgate in Camden. So that's our that's our new build part. But the bit that's been neglected again by all the other parties yeah. is the state of our existing housing stock. And that's millions and millions of homes that are badly insulated, that are cold, that are damp, that are often mouldy, uh, that cost an awful lot to heat. They're adding to, to people's levels of poverty, but they're also wasting huge amounts of carbon. Mm-hmm. And we absolutely need to that about half our carbon emissions are from our buildings. Uh, a lot of that is oh. from our homes. So if we're going to get down to carbon neutral, this needs tackling. Yeah. So our, our 100 billion a year investment is part of the Green New Deal. 38 billion of that is going into fixing the energy efficiency of our existing homes and changing our heating systems away from fossil fuels. And that's a huge investment. It's a, it's a colossal project. Mm-hmm. But think about how it will be distributed around the country because these homes are all around the country. So that's jobs to yeah. do this in a constructive interesting you know productive job yeah. in every part of the country to get this done uh, it's a proper mission uh it's something that's jonathan bartley my colleague keeps describing it as, as like the, the effort we made to rebuild after the second world war and it, and it is mm. as big as that but it's it's so big because it's been so neglected for so long it's more than 10 years since gene lambert who was the mep for london uh, up until recently produced a report about this for London saying how neglected our housing stock was, how energy inefficient it was and why it needed yeah. to yeah. And virtually nothing's been done since that. Yeah, and it's such a win-win situation to, to go it back and retrofit. It couldn't be more win-win. It couldn't yeah. be, yeah. It'll save people the, the running costs on their, on their homes, mm. they'll be healthier, um, they'll, be, they'll be happier. And, and getting it done street by street in a big project is actually the most efficient way to do it. The way that governments have done it before is, is very conditional grants or schemes you have to apply for. Yeah. None of that spends the money efficiently. If you're going to get it done, just get it done. And it also happened, I mean, it's happened before in Kirkley's Green Councillor, Andrew Cooper, yeah. was part of the team that made every single home in Kirkley's in Yorkshire insulated for free, right? It was called Warm Zone, exactly. It's called Warm Zone. 
and they turned up at your street and said, we've got this stuff, would you like us to do it to your street? And people had the option if they didn't, didn't want to. Um, but it, it did an awful mm. lot of good. I mean, it wasn't bringing homes down to zero carbon standards, yeah. but it was significantly improving the energy efficiency of, of all those homes. And like you say, it was done street by street. It wasn't it wasn't means tested. It was it was done. They went first to the streets with the, the highest levels of deprivation, but then they they also then went to some streets that were not so much um, deprived and ill to show that it was a scheme for everybody. It's, mm. Yeah, it's a proper proper policy. But the, the Green New Deal does involve devolving power more to the local authorities, doesn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah. So, so in terms of planning, particularly big sort of infrastructure projects, we'd return the decisions in those back to the local authorities rather than at the moment they're with a, with a national mm. body that often makes bad decisions, like building nuclear power stations and incinerators. Yeah. So that's, that's definitely a thing we're doing within, within planning. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge issue what we do in terms of... Um, town planning and what targets we set for what areas. Mm. It's a massive and lots of local green parties and councils do amazing work on this because they're so sensible and so rational. Yeah. About where, where the homes should go. Mainly not on floodplains is the other thing they have to keep saying. Oh god. Which is ridiculous that they should have to go, no, no not on the floodplain. <laughs> but there's there's so many. There's the whole yeah, so what what we do with land and so there's the rights there's the actual public works of building stuff. Mm-hmm. Then you've got what you do with, with the land in terms of planning, what you don't own, um, and who has control over the planning process. Huge question. If any of these ideas are resonating with you, even if at some point you went, yeah, that makes sense, then you know what to do. Talk to people about these ideas. Go out and help green candidates campaigning on the ground. And most importantly, be a part of the movement. Become a member. Join the Green Party. www.join.greenparty.org.uk Get on it. You're offering many solutions in the Green New Deal regarding housing, and that ranges from what we can do to the houses that are already built to a new way of building houses, as you said, passive house standard. What lessons can we learn from the houses we live in now about what we need to do going forward? That's that's a tricky one because the the variety of houses that we have um, in our existing stock is absolutely huge and it really does need to be looked at in a very deep way. We've had had a bit of an argument at the climate debate on Channel 4 with with Jeremy Corbyn about this (laughs) because in a way, so so what they've said is they want to do everyone's insulation and windows and they reckon they'll get uh, approximately a 30 or 40 percent reduction in energy use from from those measures mm-hmm. but we again we don't think it's efficient and, and the right thing to do to go around and just do windows not everyone needs their windows do yeah <laughs> one thing uh, and insulation what what the homes need is is what we call a deep retrofit um somebody needs to to, to go and visit the home and see what's needed and what's the what's the most efficient way to get the energy um efficiency right up to, to the highest possible standards and then do that in a bespoke way for each home and put the money behind it so that you can. And so labour sort of is about one third of what we're planning mm-hmm. to spend on, on these kinds of measures. It will only do a bit of the way. And you'll have gone around every house and done work and not done some of the work that's needed. Yeah. And it's a little bit one size fits all if it's just. Yeah. So, so it's, it's very, it has to be done in that kind of tailored way to each home and, and done in a way that's. You, you, while you're there you might as well do everything including changing the heating system away from gas if, that, if that's what's yeah and on. i think that's green party's green new deal for housing 
is quite different in that way from any other proposals of the other parties because it also involves reducing, right? It also involves taking empty homes back. It also involves renovating in a green way. It's a really holistic way of looking at everything that isn't just, we need more, we need more, more houses, more growth. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We're we're very much trying to uh, reduce as much as possible the energy needs as well as because I mean when we when we switch away from fossil fuels then we, we change our cars to electric as well the, the size of the energy grid is going to have to grow hugely we're going to need to produce more much more electricity than we did previously even with the with the best energy efficiency we can manage we're still looking at three to five times the electricity grid that we've got now wow yeah so the, and, the, and the less we do in terms of efficiency the less we do in terms of reducing the need to travel by car, for example, or traveling by by bus. Mm. So one, you know, you fit many more people into one bus than you can you can into all these different cars. Um, unless you're working in ways that are also making things more efficient, then the need of what you have to generate goes up and up and up as well. Yeah. So uh, yes, it's the only way to get there um, is to is to focus on the the, the negawatts. We call it end. That's with an end. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's a brilliant term. So the 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 megawatt is a is a watt of electricity you don't need to generate. Because uh, that's so green. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. Not just not just the megawatts. Yeah. It's the megawatts mm. too. And some of these some of this electricity would be produced by households themselves, right? That's part of the green new deal for housing. We yeah mm. yeah again we've got much more um, of a focus on community level action um, and bringing people together in energy cooperatives and local energy companies and and all of those things would really really give people incentives to put solar panels and heat pumps and and all those things that mm. generate electricity into their own homes and I think that again is something that you don't quite see from the other parties who are, who are very top down and the mayor of London for example we've been trying to get him to put an energy company for London together and he just hasn't quite got the vision to make it happen he doesn't care enough about it to put the effort yeah. in as far as we can yeah. tell and um, so he's doing something called a white label and we're, sort of, we're being like an energy company but we're offering people essentially the opportunity to sign up to Nottingham Council scheme oh. rather than our own which is for London that's, that's no. not good enough I think we should be absolutely making our own electricity company so yeah we'll be pushing well caroline russell's been pushing them there on that from day one um and we haven't got quite got there yet but if i was now it's one of the first things i'd do yeah and we've talked about warm homes but how about secure homes because what we've seen is just such an increase in precarity as we've talked about already and also the rise in property guardians and the rise in homelessness so how would the green new deal help to give people secure homes the council homes we provide would be all on secure tenancies and people need that. Um, again, the focus that the Conservatives have on home ownership as the only method of getting security, I think, is behind the times. Um, and actually, many other countries have a much larger private rented sector where people are secure um, and people really want a secure home they can live in for as long as they want to. Um, the rest of their life if they need to and there's many more older private renters now who are very much not thinking they want to buy a home and get a mortgage but they are thinking that they want to have a home that they can call their own and and live in for the rest of their lives and there are very few opportunities to do that when the private rented sector is all on short-term tenancy so we have it's the the right model that we Mm. need to to fix that yeah and I guess a universal basic income would also be 
key to ensuring people's security in in their home right it, it would so yeah i mean the universal basic income is a basic payment um to everybody to keep you out of poverty no matter what happens in your life but it's 89 pounds a week that we're aiming to, to get to um, by 2025 much more than you would get in current social security it is above the poverty threshold mm-hmm. once you take housing into account but because housing costs differ so much around the country, we would still maintain a separate housing benefit system. Okay. Um, in the in the same way as we do now. So basic income on its own won't cover your housing costs under our under our current scheme. Um, if we can get the housing market not to be quite so unequal, particularly between different areas, then we'd include housing costs in mm. as well. That's the ultimate aim. But at the moment, we 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 can't see how we can do that in a way that, that isn't quite complicated. So we'd have a separate housing benefit. Yeah, but we wouldn't have an overall benefit cap the way that we do. One of the things that's that's really causing homelessness at the moment is the overall benefit cap. And so for people in areas of high housing costs, it's very, very easy to reach that. And then the benefits just won't cover your housing costs. You end up in arrears. And that's one of the reasons for people ending up homeless, particularly families, because families need bigger homes and, and so have higher rents in the first place. It's much easier for them to reach the benefit cap. Mm. So this all sounds um, fantastic, but his his his. <laughs> See how much we have to change everything. <laughs> yeah. This is the problem with describing it was actually everything needs to change. So small things, right? Absolutely everything. Yeah, all the laws, all the policies. <laughs> but let's talk about what what does the country and the economy look like after this green new deal gets implemented? I think also, I mean, this is we are talking about building a better world, and this is a really good question. Um, asking me what things look like after we've we've done all this. So you're asking about sort of 2030. Yeah, um, and also about once we've once we've got and also there. about the economy, the, the the kind of cost, how that will kind of pay for itself, I guess. Yes. So what we've done with our manifesto is we've we've costed up all the borrowing that we want to put into the Green New Deal. We're going to increase corporation tax a little bit, not even up to the average, actually, but we're going to increase it a little bit. And all the costs of servicing the new debts for our Green New Deal are covered by that increase in corporation tax, which means that all the side benefits that you get from our Green New Deal investment, mm-hmm. those are benefits still to come, if you see what I mean. So we've, we've, there are future, there, is, there are more gains to be had and more money we can reinvest in in services and things that will come from the Green New Deal investments, but we've not priced those into our plans so far. Our plans currently pay for themselves. And that's really exciting because once we've made all the homes warm and dry, that will have a huge effect on people's health. Once we've got secure housing and and the security of a basic income, I don't think you can overestimate the impact that would have on lots of people's mental health. Mm There's a crisis in mental health at the moment. One of the things that makes you depressed and anxious and can can contribute to other mental health problems is insecurity and worry about money. And we would take that away with our universal Mm -hmm. basic income scheme. So we will really start to see genuine, I don't want to say like growth or anything (laughs) like that, but we will see economic benefits coming through savings in our in our health service mm-hmm. we'll see uh, improvements in things like productivity there will be more well-being people will have more choices in their lives more ability to contribute to the community so they'll also be doing things that help other people avoid I, i'm gonna say a medical word like morbidity at this point but <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean it's like so, so yeah people who might be um unable to interact with the community and therefore become lonely and neglect their health all of those kinds of things will start to 
to pay off in a, in a virtuous cycle. Mm. And so things like how much will it cost? It really, you know, it's like, why would we not do yeah. this? Is my answer to that. Why would we not make a better world with all these things in? And, and like I say, the money, the savings that we'll get to public services from all of those side benefits, which are really important things in people's lives as well, that it's not, it's not even priced into our schemes at the moment. So that will give us as the public sector more options of, of what to do then as well. If we want to help small businesses or, or help with, with new industries or, or invest in something where our researchers said there's, there's, there's innovation and we should do something, we, we should have even more options. It's not very opposite of a belt tightening exercise, what we're doing. And it has, um, has implications for what happens next mm. as well. But we're just talking about the first few years in our, in our manifesto at the moment. It's a huge investment in in the future of the country and also in yeah, in veering off our course towards climate chaos. Yeah, it's a complete change of course. It's a complete change of direction and philosophy mm. is what we're talking about. I'm very proud it's all in one manifesto. So for some people who are seeing all the other parties bring out shiny new policies about the environment, about climate chaos, what would you say to them? Why would Why should they still vote green if other parties are getting so on board? Well, they definitely need to look at those policies and see if they have that comprehensive system change built in or whether they are time limited, smaller initiatives that will do a bit of good and ask whether or not they they really will change the system in the way our policies will. And the other question, I'm afraid, and I've seen this too many times in my life as a campaigner and as a Green, is okay they're promising this stuff but do you really trust them to do it mm. we all remember david cameron hugging huskies one minute and then as soon as soon as he had his own majority and to need to ask to anybody else um the instructions were ditched is it drop drop the green crap the <laughs> yeah green something crap. like that yeah yes get rid of the green crap um and and things started going right in the opposite mm. direction this is when the policies came in to to basically ban onshore wind farms it changed the way that the solar market operated. It was a disaster. And so, yeah, do you trust them to, to actually follow through on this? Or are they just saying this? Because you know for a fact the Green Party are not just saying this. Yeah. And when you look at the local level, like what you're doing in the London Assembly, you're having to push Sadiq Khan, the Labour mayor, on issues like airport expansion, on the Silvertown Tunnel, right? So on a local level, what other parties, such as the Labour Party, are doing it is contradicting all these new promises. That is a really good point. Also, go and look at your local mm. council and the people running your cities, because you'd be surprised how many Labour councils are doing things like backing airport expansion, trying to build new roads. One of them just approved a coal mine. Yeah, a blocking action like divestment yeah. from fossil fuels in Bristol, for example. Oh yeah, they can be terrible on divestment. Mm. They're awful on divestment in Camden. I had a I had a council meeting where the chair of the pension committee and me had another argument. And it, yeah, they, they're not getting yeah, in on that. It's that's such an obvious one. And that's got the public behind it, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're know, still taking sponsorship from fossil fuel yeah. companies and airports at their conferences. You've got to, you've got to look in the round at, at what they do and not just what they say. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to Green Space. And watch out for more episodes coming your way. But in the meantime, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review. Tell your friends and family to subscribe too. Tweet about it. Post it on Facebook for that uncle and auntie. Basically, get the word out.